This is Serena Catania with OWC Radio's Creative Club, and I have Chris Fenwick on the line. This is an impromptu interview because I wrangled Chris. He's just such an interesting person, and I want to know more about him, and I think you guys will too. So, Chris, tell everybody listening what you do uh, for a living. Oh, it's kind of a loaded question. Uh, Primarily what I do, you know, seven to five or so every day is I'm an editor. So I sit at a Mac and I push pixels around. Um, Editing in the 21st century, uh, you know, changes quite a bit depending on who you're working for. I may be just um, what I like to call a hired wrist. Uh, Somebody who doesn't actually know how to use the computer will say, can you put that in front of that and that after that? Sometimes um, I'm given, uh, you know, cards of data from the field and say, tell the story about these two sales associates. Um, Sometimes uh, I get more into the motion graphics world and it will be um, uh, create a visual metaphor for this complex financial transaction. And sometimes uh, I am actually dealing with uh, large companies uh, at a very kind of high level uh, brand identity um, level. Um, One of my clients, as a matter of fact, has hired me for the last uh, four or five years, I think now. I've been working very closely with them in terms of building a, um, a visual language that is easy to share with other um, content providers so that all of the content providers, um, video content providers, uh, everything looks the same. So I'm actually building templates and things that they can um, distribute among all of their contractors. So there's a lot of different things that editor in, in my world mean. Uh, and who knows, maybe I'm just, you know, jack of all trades, master of none, but that's kind of in a nutshell what I do on a day-to-day basis. That's one of those, one of those hats. That's probably why you're still working, though. Don't you think that in this day and age, we need to be able to wear more than one hat? I mean, I think that's why I'm still working after all these years. Oh, absolutely. I think, I think, um, you know, uh, Norm Holland, uh, there's a soundbite of him from one of the editor's lounges where he said um, very poignantly, um, the Hollywood system is dead. They just don't know it yet. And so... In, in today's day and age, in the post-production world, you have to be willing to adapt. You have to be willing to learn. You have to be willing to um, admit your weaknesses and exploit your strengths. And um, one of the things that happened to me at a, at a young age in this business was um, I, made some, <laughs> I made some really bad uh, mistakes when it came to my education. Like what? All right. So here's the deal. Uh, I'm 56 years old to be 57 in a couple of months. So when I graduated from high school, it was the same year that um, MTV was born. And Mm -hmm. so I saw these little movies, Mm -hmm. these little films. Mm -hmm. And I was like, and I love the fact, I love the idea of synchronizing sound and picture. That, to me, uh, was born out of watching Star Wars at age 14. Um, In the original Star Wars movie, there's a scene that's commonly referred to as the binary sunset. And it's a scene where Luke Skywalker, after getting in a fight with his uncle, leaves their underground dwelling and he walks out to the sunset on Tatooine. And there are two sunsets. 
on Tatooine. And the, the binary sunset had this beautiful, warm picture on Luke's face as he looked out over the horizon, wondering about what his life could be. And, and yet there's this moment where the John Williams soundtrack swells and it's gorgeous and it's beautiful. And at 14 years old, I remember thinking, Oh, I want to do that. Now I didn't even know what that meant. It took me many years to figure out, Oh, that's a picture editor. You know, I'm a video editor, whatever. And so, and in that, in that year, 77 and 81, when I graduated from high school, I mean, the, the accessibility of the tools that we take for granted or, quite frankly, often carry in the po- our pockets, um, it, it, was, it was unattainable to me. So I set out to try and figure out how to, um, you know, make these music videos that I was so enamored with. So I was dumb. I was, I was monumentally stupid. And I said, oh, music video. I want to make music videos. So I want to take video production classes. Well, here's the thing. Music videos were shot on film. And video production classes in the 80s, mid-80s, were about sitting in a studio in a multi-camera environment with production switches and audio mixers and lighting grids and really bad cameras. And no music videos of note were made in video production studios. They were shot on film by filmmakers. What I should have done was take film classes but I didn't because I wanted to make music videos. I took video production classes, (laughs) huge error on my part because I was two years into it before I realized we're never going to make a music video here. Are we? (laughs) You know, I remember saying that to my instructor and he said, yeah, you should have probably should have taken filmmaking classes. I was like, damn it. (laughs) So, So, but, but what ended up happening there was I, there was a found love discovery, if you will, of the process of education, taking something that was complicated and putting it on a screen in a way that it could be absorbed by a larger audience. Okay. Um, And I'm sure there's some really fancy educated ways of explaining that. But to me, it was just breaking things down so that people could learn it. All right. And so, so that process became really fascinating to me. And I found very quickly that, uh, you know, uh, speaker support graphics, as they later became uh, known, now we just think of it as PowerPoint or keynote, whatever, um, that visual aids very much aided in that. And in the corporate video communications world, all you're doing is taking complicated things and explaining it to people. And so I would have never found this part of this business had I had I intelligently chosen filmmaking instead of video production when I was, you know, 18, 19 years old. Um, so I, I kind of stumbled into this, but I've also grown to really love it. So then don't call it a mistake, because actually, I think it was really good oh, that no. it happened that way, right? It was clearly, it was, no, no, I will, I will continue to call it a mistake. It was clearly a mistake. Now, that being said, I think I did stumble into a more lucrative part of the business. Yeah. Because if you just want to be a filmmaker, like if you just say, what do you do for a living? I shoot music videos. Really? How many days a month are you working? Because mm-hmm. I work every day, right? <laughs> and so I think that, 
I think that in, in today's day and age, you know, I always tell people, you know, the only reason to purchase a camera is to feed an edit suite. And anybody in today's day and age who just says, Oh, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a camera operator or I'm a DP or I own, that's all you do. I think it's a mistake unless you're in the very highest echelons. I think it's very difficult to make a living as just a person who touches a camera and pulls focus and frames shots and maybe helps with the lights. I think it's a very, it's a very difficult way to make a living. So Post-production, on the other hand, I always tell the camera guys I know, for every day you shoot, I'm going to cut for at least three. Hmm. There's going to be – so right from the get-go, I'm working three times as much as you are this year. I've never thought of it that way. That's a great way to put it. So what job do you want? Do you want the job where you work 100 days a year or 300 days a year? It's pretty simple equation when you think about it. So I am always telling people, you've got to get involved in post in one way or another. And I think that there's ways that camera people can, can get involved. I think one of the things that nobody has ever explored is the idea of delivering footage that's already logged. <laughs> Nobody's, I've never met anybody who said, oh, and here's your footage, and here is a log of what was discussed. What? Because camera guys, by and large, they don't want to, they, there's, an, a, there's a phobia of getting involved in posts, and there shouldn't be. It's just, it's where, the, it's where most of the money is, in my, in my opinion. Well, I'm a proponent of logging being part of the production process, not necessarily yes. just the post. And we can talk about that later on. Bringing metadata from production into post is super important. You know, um, somebody uh, recently I did a piece that was all shot on a red Weapon Epic Scarlet, whatever, whatever the hell it was, it, it, you know, four eight six nineteen K, whatever. I don't know, but um, <laughs> probably the helium or something. <laughs> in addition to the camera footage, he delivered a PDF document, what? and the PDF document had a key frame. It may have been the first frame. I don't know of each shot, and all the camera metadata next to it. It told me, you know, what lens was on, what focal length, the ISO, the LUT, the blah, 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 all that camera words stuff. Great. Love it. But w and, and I'm sure that that was some, there's some piece of software that you, you know, Google connect to your red camera and it generates and spits all that out. And he mentioned some utility that he uses. But what if that utility also had, even if it was just, you know, the shot number, if it was, if it had a shot number or the line of script. And if, and if nobody wants to give you that much, give me the first five words of what the talent said in the, in this third section of our video, we want to discuss, okay, give me that because that's a hint in post that gets me closer to finding what I need to find. I just cut a piece in the last couple of days where the producer just opted to roll three cameras for 30 minutes at a time and ramble his way through a 10 minute script 
stopping and starting and doing pickups and never once giving me any indication in a 30-minute take of what line he's starting on. Uh, let's go back one line and pick it up from there. I don't even know what line we stopped at because th- your script didn't have shot number or line numbers. 30-minute takes. 21 of them. 21 of these takes shot over two days. Wow. So, you know, you're not helping post. But then again, I charge by the hour, so whatever. Let's, let's start cutting through this. Let's go way, way back because I'm always very curious about the creative psyche because you're obviously a very creative person. And I know you're a bit of a nerd because you're, you've been at all of our little tribes gatherings. We were at the Apple, <laughs> you know, at the creative, what was it called? Summit, and, yeah. Yeah. You know, we've been at all Battle these. Ev- creative Summit. Yes, exactly. The creative summit, which I actually just, I love that event. It was so wonderful to Me too. be there in that room. And, but don't you hate it when they come on stage and they say, don't take any pictures of this room and you just, you just want to, but you can't. It's like, it's so wonderful being on that campus and there's so much, there's just so much yeah. energy there. Isn't it great being with that group of people? But let's go back to when you were a little boy. What, what was the first memory you have of something that you actually loved to do? I'm just curious. Well, it's funny. I've told this story before, but I am, uh, my mother and father are, diametrically opposed um, creatively. My father was an engineer. He graduated from USC on a GI grant. Uh, he had two degrees in engineering, one in mechanical, one in electrical. He, he got both of those degrees in a four-year period. And in the final semester of school, he carried 32 uh, units and passed them all. And he had to do that because the GI bill would only pay for four years of school. And he wanted to maximize everything he could get out of it. My mother, on the other hand, was a was an oil and canvas artist. She would, I'd come home from school and she'd have these giant canvases set up in the family room where she was painting flowers and, and uh, you know, these just big, giant, broad strokes. And I was always fascinated that my mom could take a white piece of canvas and make something beautiful to look at. Hmm. But my dad was this engineer and I can remember one time I was very young, probably six years old or so, seven years old maybe. And I was, I was sitting at the kitchen table and I was sketching on a piece of paper. Uh, this is for you science fiction nerds, the chariot and the chariot was the glass dome all-terrain vehicle that the Robinson family drove on Boston space. Okay, that's super nerd that I could rattle all that off without thinking about it. (laughs) But the the chariot was this really cool-looking little space car. And I was drawing this thing. And my dad had come home from work, and he sat down next to me, and he goes, what are you drawing? And I said, it's, you know, it's from from Lost in Space. It's It's like a car to drive around on the moon or whatever. And my dad goes, well, you know what it means. And he takes the pencil from me. And on the front of the thing, he draws a mast. And then he draws a little box and he draws what could only be a, like a, some sort of a bearing. Here's my dad being the engineer. He's drawing the bearing that this thing is going to swivel on. And he says, and he draws this thing and I go, what's that? And he goes, it's, he says, it's a light. And I go, oh yeah, it'd be good to have a light. And he goes, no, it's not just any light. And again, I got to remember, he's talking to a six or seven year old son. He goes, it's a xenon light. Xenon is the brightest light we know how to make. And it'll 
you know, he starts describing all the technology behind this thing that he's drawing on. But, you know, I'm sketching, you know, trying to be as artistic as my mom. And he's drawing, like, you know, <laughs> a, 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 you know, like an engineer's drawing, like an isometric drawing from a draftsman on top of my thing. But it was this melding of technology and art that mm-hmm. got me to where I am now. Mm-hmm. Because in this world, you have to have some sort of artistic aesthetic to get the things done that we do. But we also have to deal with, oh, my computer's not working or what kind of hard drive should I get and what sort of, you know, things or cables or whatever. So there really is a a, a collision of art and technology that has happened, especially in this business and especially in, uh, you know, the 21st century. It used to be you'd have you know, the machine room down the hall and you'd call in the engineers and go, uh, computer, you know, edit system broke. I'm going outside until you fix it. And that doesn't exist anymore. You got to be able to fix your own stuff. But, you know, this brings us right back to what you were saying before, that people who work on the production side need to be more aware of the post-production side. And I think it's like this patchwork quilt. You have to know as much as you can about everything before you can create the whole picture, right? That's what that's there was my a guy, feeling. Yeah, I, I used to work at KQED in San Francisco. I, I didn't work there full time, but I was a I don't know what they call it, you know some freelance on call kind of guy. And there was a guy there, and I can't remember his name, so I won't. I think I know his name, but I don't want to say it wrong. But he was a unit manager, and no, 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 he was post production supervisor for one of the shows that I worked on, and. uh I, as a, a, at the time I was an assistant director and I was able to sit in on some of the edits that he was doing. And this is like when editing was refrigerator sized one inch tape yeah. machines <laughs> that were true. down the hall and, you know, you had to be, uh, you know, a union editor or, uh, NABIT union, blah, 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 and whatever. So it was, it was an unattainable thing for me at that time, at, at that age. And this is a guy who, uh, at, at KQD, they had CMX edit systems. And this is a guy who was not even in the engineering union. He wasn't allowed to touch the edit controller. And he had gone and on his own dime taken a CMX edit class even though he would never be allowed to enter in a single keystroke on that CMX editor at KQED because he was in the wrong union. Hmm. And I said to him, I said, why did you do that? He goes, because I want to know more than anybody else in the room. Smart guy. And it's really true. It's, It's very powerful if you have at least a cursory understanding of every different job on a crew. If you're a director, you should know how audio works. You should know how camera works. If for nothing else, then you get to a point where you say, you know, you, you're not that guy who says you have 15 minutes to set up and they look at you and go, are you kidding? I need an hour to set up. And if you understood that job, you would have planned ahead of time and said, cameras need 90 minutes to set up. Exactly. Exactly. I think the most, I think the most important skill that a director has is to fight and scratch and claw away for all the resources that the rest of the people on your crew need. 
and give and, that to and then give it to them. And the producer needs to help with that too. And a lot of times they're at loggerheads because of budgets. I want to go back to that moment when your dad was drawing on your pad of paper. How did, <laughs> how did you feel about that? What, how did you feel about that moment when he drew the xenon light? I think like anything, I was just in awe of how much my dad knew. Mm-hmm. My dad was always the smartest guy in the room. He always was the one when you'd say, what does that mean? He'd say, look at, you know, look it up. There's a dictionary on the table. There's a reason I paid that money for that seven inch thick dictionary over there. <laughs> Go open it up and learn it, you know, mm. but he was always the smartest guy in the room. So it didn't surprise me. It was just another example of him being able to, to teach. He liked to teach. He liked knowing that when he was done with you, that you were smarter. You know, he was all, he took everything as a, as a, um, as an opportunity to, to teach. He used to say, he used to say, my job is to learn a job and then teach somebody else how to do it. And that infuriated my mother <laughs> because she'd always say, she'd always say, Tom, you're, you're going to teach your way out of a job. And he would just look at her and go, no, there will always be something more for me to do. Oh, that's pretty awesome. Did your you mom know, see what so, he drew on your pad? Do you remember the xenon light? Did your mom I, see? Do you remember? I don't. I don't recall. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. But I, you know, that, that's a vivid memory. That's a memory that happened. At, I would say probably fifty years ago, and I remember it like it happened yesterday. Because those are the moments that form who we are. I think you're born with a lot of this stuff, and and where you grow up and who you grow up with can mold you in different ways. But that is one of those really revealing moments. I think that Norman Holland probably would have said that was your first lean forward moment, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 You have a very big brain and you're very creative. So I think you really are a mixture of the two, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think there have been times in my past where I've said that you know, most people have some sort of a membrane between their left and right brain. And I think I was born without that, that the, the creative solution to technical problems and the technical solution to creative problems for me, those are like one and the same thing. They've always, they always have been. And and I'm, I've always been kind of blessed with the ability to, um, uh, conceptualize difficult things Mm -hmm. because and I don't know what it is, but it's like good troubleshooting. You know, I mean, if you've ever met somebody who you ever met somebody who's really good at troubleshooting a difficult problem. Mm -hmm. Okay. Most people would say yes to that. Have you ever met somebody where you look at them and you say, you have no idea what you're talking about. You know, and it's a, it's a, I admit they don't it. Understand yes, I have. They, they don't understand cause and effect. They don't understand that one thing is not even remotely related to the other. You know, uh, you walk into the office, you're wearing your Levi's. The Internet isn't working. I obviously can't wear jeans to work anymore. <laughs> no, those aren't related. But but look, it's not working and I'm wearing Levi's. You're a moron. If you honestly think that you're a moron, so, but, but I think, I think that, uh, 
I've always been really good at taking things that are really, or I've always at least felt I was really good at taking complex things and breaking them down into tiny little pieces. And, you know, here's something I've never, I've never admitted to anybody. Um, I've always found it fascinating people that carry around notepads with them all the time. Oh, I'm going to jot down this idea or I'm going to sketch this out or I'm going to write down the 10 things that I need to do today, whatever it is. I've never been that person for some reason. Complex things stack up in a very accessible way in my brain hole. And like I can keep track of a couple of dozen complex things and the order in which they need to happen. Um, and I don't know why that is, but I've always looked at people that, you know, like they have their little notepad or a little notebook and they flip it open and they jot down a few things. What are you doing? Oh, I'm writing down some things I need to get done. Huh? Okay. <laughs> Interesting. I would never do that. I That's just pretty awesome. I, though. I, I, that, that, I don't know why it is. I've, and again, I've never expressed this to anybody, but I've always kind of looked at the, you know, the, the person who's jotting down ideas. There's something, uh, there's something kind of cool about that. I've just never needed to do it. Do you I play think one chess? time I did have a little book. I don't play chess. I understand chess, but I, I'm not a good chess player. I, I would be beat a hundred times out of a hundred probably if I played with anybody who plays, but I get it. I just, it's one of those things where you have to invest the time in it mm -hmm. to really absorb it. I will tell you this one, and I, I, I think a lot of people know this about me, but you may not. Uh, there was a time in the early eighties when I was tied, I don't know if you'll use this in any of the stuff you're doing here, but it's an interesting. <laughs> I was actually tied with the world record for solving the Rubik's cube. Uh-huh. See, I believe that really. So at the time the world record was 26 seconds. It's like six seconds now, but, uh, and to be fair, and I will be completely forward about this. It was a bit of a fluke. I think certain things fell into place. If you know anything about how to solve a Rubik's cube, there's you get good you get good days and bad or good solves and bad solves. And this was a good one. And I had you know it was it was a fluke moment. But yes, at the time the world record was 26 seconds. And when I hit my stopwatch, it was like that was fast. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but but there's something about that process and breaking it down. You know, to, to do a Rubik's Cube fast, there's a certain amount of physical dexterity. There's um, visual acuity. You have to be able to glance at a cube and flip it over once and know where every piece is, mm -hmm. like in a split second. And then there's the, the logic of I want to get from here to there in the least amount of rotations possible. And there are things that you can do to skip over steps and have things happen concurrent with other things that you're doing. If that makes any sense. So, you know, you can take something that normally would take 21 rotations of the cube and you may be able to do it in nine. And guess what? I just saved 12 rotations and now I'm doing it faster because I'm turning it less time. So anyway, that there's that part of my mind 
And when I, and you know, I was doing this in the early eighties and when I realized in the early 2000s that there were whole web pages developed to, or d- devoted to the Rubik's Cube and solving the Rubik's Cube, I went down a bit of a path for a while and I, and I toyed with the idea. I realized that, you know, I kind of had a personal goal that I wanted to be able to do sub 30 seconds every time I did the cube. And then I started studying the, some of these websites and I got, I had a moment of clarity when I realized I would probably take me another 10,000 hours of work to be able to get sub 30 second every time I touched a Rubik's cube. And I said, Nope, that's good. I'm okay with doing it in under a minute every time I touch it. But, but there was like, there was like a, a, a moment where I was like, do I really want to go down this path? No, 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 that would be bad. <laughs> That'd be a waste of time professionally. But, but my mind, uh, gets fascinated by things like that. You know, there's a metaphor in there because I think editing is a lot like working the Rubik's Cube, trying to solve that puzzle because a lot of times the client will come in and they'll have, I remember one client sending me 58 hours of unlogged footage and saying, can you turn this into a one-hour network show? Uh, it was a you know one of those unscripted things. And yeah. it's a bit like that, isn't it? Because you've got... As an editor, more and more now, editors are being called on to help develop the story. I think that is an right. undue that that's just an undue burden on an editor. I think I think everyone needs a story editor working alongside of them. That's my forte yeah. as a story editor. Maybe that's why I'm saying that. But um, I think <laughs> the Rubik's cube and your ability to do that is also what makes you a really good editor because you can handle all of those pieces. But you know what comes to mind when you talk about that? I think about all these young kids who are going out with these cameras and they're just shooting, 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 shooting. And uh, none of them are logging, like you said. You're right about that. They're not logging. And then they bring it all back and they go, well, I know what's in here. And I always tell them, no, you have to organize yourself because you may not be the only one touching that stuff, number one. And number two, 10 years from now, if you have to do a recut, how are you going to find anything? Yeah. So I totally agree with what you're saying. And yet simultaneously, I totally agree with the kid. So here's my, (laughs) here's my, here's my point. My friend, Chris Fenwick, the anarchist. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you think of, if you, I've always said that, the, you know, the only thing that's consistent in this business is change. So, you know, when I started 35 years ago, it was right before the death of the video tube cameras and everybody switched to CCDs. All the cameras had chips in them instead of tubes. Right. Um, a few years later, we saw people starting to ditch their VHS offline systems for computer-based you know, avid, early avid systems that edited little postage stamps that nobody ever thought would be a real, you know, stream of video. And yet here we are in 2019. Um, uh, we saw, you know, we've seen so many changes. We got to the point where people would online in the computer. We got to the point where people said, we will never let go of videotape. And then there's a great tsunami in 2011. And the the, biz, the biggest videotape factories in the world are destroyed and everybody starts rethinking the idea of shooting straight to hard drives, you know? So like things change 
every couple of years, something radically changes. And so uh, you and I come from an era where it took 20 people to put together a TV show. And what is a TV show anymore? Are we talking about something that I sit in front of a screen and I'm entertained by sound and pictures? Well, you know, I look at a, a, somebody like Casey Neistat, who, you know, for a while there was putting a 10 minute video on YouTube every single day. And who, by and the I, way, is I, moving to LA? I'm so excited. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and yet, you know, did he have a staff of 20 people? He did not. He no. was doing it all completely solo. And does he know what's on the video? Yes, he does. Is he, does it change the way he shoots? Absolutely. When he started doing his gimmick where, and it's, you know, I say gimmick, but you know, and he's not the first person to do it, but he did it really well. And he did it with no crew and no production assistance, but where he would start a story in his living room and finish the story 10 shots later as he walked into his office. It's like, that's somebody who clearly knows what they're going for. Now, did he sit down and log everything? He absolutely did not, because if he had, he wouldn't have had another video out tomorrow, because this thing's going to be posted by the end of the day. And so it's a different, it's a different objective. It's a different level of production value. Casey Neistat is brilliant at doing, making the one-man band look like it's a, a, you know, a crew of 20 people, but... Um, and and then the other thing is, really? Do we really think in ten years I'm going to recut my January my my May twenty second vlog post? No, I'm not. He's putting just as much work into it as he needs to to do what he's trying to achieve. So, in some ways, yes, I totally agree. If he did want to, you know, recut something ten years later, it might be hard to find it. But he's probably not going to need to do that. He is really good. I will say this, and I'm a huge Casey Neistat fan. He is really good at very quickly finding things from the past. And he's I've I've seen him talk about how he organizes things, and you know he he does cut in Final Cut 10, or at least he was. I think he still is. Um, and you know he sorts things by date, so he can go back to a specific day and find something. But yeah, and he, you know, he's shooting as as much as he needs to shoot. I think it's really ambitious when you see things that he does where he's, you know, managing multiple cameras. But to be fair, you know, he did kind of burn out. He's not doing stuff daily anymore. He he made a point and he got ten million followers on YouTube. Yeah, you know, I think he's and awesome. then he and then he slowed down. Do you like yeah, the way he no, cuts? He, he, I love the way he cuts. I absolutely love the way he cuts. Yeah. I mean, I've been doing this for 35 years, and there's not a video he's ever posted that I wouldn't be absolutely proud to put my name on. It's a cut by Chris Fennel. So what NLEs have you been using? Well, since 2012, exclusively Final Cut 10. Really? Why? <sighs> because I'm thinking about the future and not worried about the past. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I happen uh, I think, to agree with you, think, but I'm just curious. And I think Apple, it. and I think Apple is too. Um, when you understand what Apple was trying to do, and you take the time to get 
over the learning wall, which is what I refer to as the learning, cur- you know, the learning, what most people would call the learning curve. It really is a wall. It's a brick wall. You open it up, you're pissed off almost immediately. And 99% of the people just quit it and never launch it again. I get that. I totally get that. But the first person who sat in an automobile, having ridden a horse their entire adult life, is going to be very much daunted by how much complicated the user interface is. Driving a car is not like riding a horse. But the car has kind of worked out for us. (laughs) And the early adopters who said, no, I'm going to get over this gas pedal, brake pedal, I'll figure it out. Yep, steering wheel. So there's no leather reins. Okay, I'm okay with that. Let's figure this thing out. I mean, you know, it, it, when something takes a, a, makes a tectonic shift, you, you're going to have to adopt, adapt, rather. You're going to have to adapt to things being a little different. And so when you get to the point where you get over that learning wall and you realize, okay, so there's a reason why Apple didn't bother putting login capture into this because tape is dead anyway. Well, no, it's not. I'm still using tape. Yeah, but you won't be, (laughs) you know, they're absolutely looking toward the future and everybody else is, you know, radically holding on to the past. You know, and so because of that, because I'm much more worried about the future than the past, I I tell people all the time, all the time, you need to be looking over the fence. Mm-hmm. Something is coming and you need to know about what's happening. I've always sort of enjoyed the process of making a little bit of stuff do a lot of stuff. The first TV station I worked at, the production switch, I did a lot of live Tele, uh, teleconferencing, um, multi cameras, live switcher, live to satellite. What station I did was that? that? For like a, it was a station in San Mateo, California, mm-hmm. called um, uh, K- KCSM. But we had a very we had a thriving retail department where we would rent our studio out to various local companies, and that's what I did. I did some some of the broadcast stuff that the station was doing, but I was also predominantly like the, I was like the main TD for all of the retail work that they did. And the, the production switcher that KCSM had in the eighties, it was awful. <laughs> it was really bad, but I used to really thrive on making it do things that, um, you know, I would like routinely have the production manager come in and go, How'd you do that? <laughs> this, this doesn't do that. I go, well, yeah, it does. Or I can remember one time I got into an argument with the chief engineer and I said, I need you to put another router in the, in the control room because I need to be able to control what's on the backside of the A channel of the DVE. And I realized that, you know, there's a, a whole generation of kids that are listening to me that have no idea what I'm saying. But, <laughs> but <true>. yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> but, but he, he said, he said, and the chief engineer said, you could put something on the back of the, of the DV. And I said, yeah, and I need to be able to change it. And I, I remember getting in an argument with him about it. He goes, well, I, I don't know why we need to do that. I said, because the, it's going to make the client happy and they pay the bills around here. <laughs> very reluctantly, he threw his hands up. He said, fine. And he, he brought in another router head so I could control 
what was on the back of the DVE because I was going to make a lot of use out of that by flipping it over when it uh, blah, 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 you know, but it, it was, <laughs> it was taking a little bit of technology and xenon lights and putting it on top of a sketch of a moon car that made sense to me. I it love. was technology and art together. Yeah, I, lo- I love that. I love those images. I think that, and that's one of the reasons why I love doing OWC Radio, because it's the marriage of tech and creativity. I think the two go hand in hand. Your mom and dad were the marriage, literally, of tech and creativity. Yeah. And and there's beautiful yeah. music that can happen when you bring the two together. So I'm thinking about the, the younger generation that is listening in. What do you tell them? What can you... As someone who has been through these hoops, what can you tell them about what to look for in the future and also what to do now so that they can become successful at what they do? The first thing I would say is don't get too comfortable. Um, You should know that there's always something new coming around the corner that's going to make the thing that's on your desk that you absolutely love, it's going to make you want to throw it in a trash can. Yep. And just accept that. There's some financial things about that that I would um, definitely tell people to be careful about. Um, One thing I tell people all the time, and I apologize, this is a bit of a departure, but remember those two questions that you just asked me, because I do want to come back to that. But while we're here, when you buy a computer, the day you buy your computer, start saving for the next one. Oh, cameras too. Any technical equipment. Anything. Yeah. Start absolutely. saving for the next one that day. Yeah. Because the alternative is in a couple of years when you want to buy a new laptop or whatever and you don't have the money sitting aside. But the alternative is you're going to put it on a credit card and then you're going to be paying interest for something while you pay off that credit card. But if you were but if you save from on day one of any purchase for the next purchase, when that next purchase comes around, as long as you save enough, that is, <laughs> you'll have cash to buy that next thing, and you will you will carry no guilt when you say, oh, there's a new computer that's better than what I have. I want to buy it. Oh, guess what? I already have the money in the bank because you've been saving for the last two years. And the other thing is don't buy one of everything. Skip a generation on everything. Okay, so that's that's finance 101. Um, <laughs> I love that. Finance 101. Sure. You're right. I have a little envelope on the back wall here. It's actually hanging on the back wall, and I keep putting money in it for the next camera equipment that I might need. <laughs> there you go. There's yeah, that's a very physical way me. of doing it. Yeah, it's yep. a yeah. bright red feng shui so, red envelope. <laughs> so, you're, so you're talking about the, the, the kids. Uh, how, so... Yeah, I mean, I get asked this question all the time. You know, I I try to mentor young people as much as I can. I do think we have an amazing new generation coming in. and But they always ask me two things. They say, how can I get a job? And then they say, what do I need to know to be successful in the future? So, you know, what advice would you give them about, you know? To to be successful in the future, it would be good if you knew the future. Yeah. <laughs> that would be awesome. But don't you so think we have instincts about it? I mean, I think we do. We're looking over the fence. If you're looking over the fence, well, you might have some hints. It's much easier to look forward if you if you know some of the past. 
mm-hmm. because you've seen it all happen. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I was just having this conversation with somebody today. If in 2011, um, if you had been an editor for a decade, there's a very good chance you were using Final Cut Pro. Final Cut Classic, as I like to call it. Mm-hmm. Final Cut 1 through 7. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could have spent an entire decade of your career <clears throat> using essentially the same software. Minor upgrades every couple of years. Okay? A decade using the exact same tool. And then when Final Cut 10 came out, because it was different, you threw your arms up and said, you know, Apple's trying to screw me. No, they're just advancing and you're standing in the mud and you don't want to move. And, and frankly, it was unusual that one edit system, Final Cut Pro, Final Cut Classic, had been so predominant, especially in California, or at least the, the Northern California, for so long. It had been very, very predominant for a long period of time. That was unusual. That was kind of unprecedented. In the previous 20, 25 years of my career, I had used probably nine or 10 different edit systems. So what was unusual was the early 2000s where Final Cut was so stable and so predominant for quite a long time. But when you know that things are going to change, you're not afraid of things going to change. But if you've been in this business for a decade in 2011 and Final Cut 10 came out, well, you're going to have a bit of a heart attack. So don't be afraid of things changing. Be looking over the fence. Understand some of the past so that the future can kind of make a little more sense. And the other thing that I tell people who are looking for a job is I tell them, don't. Hmm. You're much better off making a job than looking for a job. Hmm. It, it, there's the, 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 I, I believe the idea of just, you know, handing out a resume to a hundred different places and getting a job and hoping that there's some sort of, you know, longevity or protection or future in that is frightening. A good friend of mine had a, has a job who, uh, he's working on a, on a major, you know, Hollywood release film. I won't go in, I won't t- go into it, but he got he got noted he just literally got notified that they're going to put the entire editorial staff on hiatus while they rewrite the film. Ouch. And now and now he's struggling to find work. And and he's expected to be available to come back when they go, come off a hiatus, which of course they have no idea when that's going to be. Wow. What kind of what kind of security is that? No. That's None. crazy. So that I tell people all the time, don't look for a job, make a job. Hmm. So I can remember you... when I start. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, you can remember. I was going to say, I was, I was going to say when I was, when I started in television classes in the mid eighties, be 84, I think it was. I walked into the first day of class and Doug Montgomery who was the instructor, he stood in the front of the class and he said, welcome to, you know, broadcast 101. If you are here because you want to learn and then go get a job in the television business, uh, there's the door. You can leave right now. There are no (laughs) jobs in in the television industry. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. He says, now, if you're interested in how TV shows are made, 
and you just want to learn some stuff, you're more than welcome to stay. So let's get started. (laughs) And and what Doug, but what Doug Montgomery didn't realize in the mid eighties was that the industry was rapidly evolving and changing. And there was a thing on the horizon called the internet. And, you know, I mean, I can remember the first time I made a video that was only going to ever be seen on the internet. I can remember the first time that I posted an, an online approval uh, compression for somebody on the internet so that they could watch it in their office and I didn't have to send them a VHS tape. They could say, yes, that's good. No, that's not. You know, the, the, there's a lot of things that have evolved and changed. And so that's why you don't have to think about or worry about this kind of old world metaphor of I'm going to get a job and I'm going to be there for 30 years and then I'm going to retire and they're going to give me a gold watch. It doesn't happen. Oh, that's a terrible way to live. I think I, I think I love my life because I'm always trying new things. I, I'm just right. always looking for something new. But there are wonderful memories. I mean, I, you probably can remember too, the first time you ever typed www into your... <laughs> computer. I know exactly where I was and exactly what I was doing. And it was like this amazing thing that was happening. Right? Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It's nuts. I remember the first time uh, I typed in a Chiron an email address that we were going to put as part of somebody's lower third. And we didn't know what an at sign was. (laughs) You know? (laughs) What is this thing? I don't know. Just type a parenthesis and a letter A and another parenthesis. You know, like, and that was in the 80s. One of our clients, this is a totally unrelated story, but we had a client who, um, he had gone to some sort of conference. And uh, some of the other people at the conference were trading business cards and email addresses. And he didn't know what email was. Oh, my gosh. This would be like 86, 87, 88. He didn't know what email was. And so when somebody said, so what's your email address? And he had heard a bunch of other emails. So he just made something up. (laughs) That's hilarious. He just made it up. (laughs) That's hilarious. Something, something, something at CompuServe.com, whatever. (laughs) And then he got, he got. He got back to the office, and I and I know this story because I knew his executive assistant, and he's like, "Hey, find out about this email thing and get me one." <laughs> oh my gosh, Chris! Apparently, it's a thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! So yeah, you just I think I think the other thing I would say to kids is. Uh, <laughs> is to not be afraid to make mistakes because the beauty of not working for somebody is you can make as many mistakes on your own as you want. Um, and a, a slight divergence, uh, a few years ago I bought my first house. And one of the things that I ended up doing the night I took the keys of the house is I remember standing in the garage and thinking, I've never had my own garage before. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to get back into woodworking. Like I was very infatuated with in junior high, but because I've lived in apartments and condos and bears, oh my, for the last, you know, 40 years, uh, 
I never had the ability to pursue that hobby. And so I started a couple of years ago, I started really getting into it again. And I've been building things for around the house and fixing fences and whatnot. But I remember I was talking to a guy at this really high endy sort of snooty uh, woodworking store near my house. And I was telling him about how much I was uh, planning like, well, I'm worried about doing it the wrong way and I want to make it the right way. And I was trying and I was like sketching some things out and he just looked at me and he said, don't, don't do that. Just build it. You're probably going to build it wrong, but you're going to learn 10 things while you do it wrong. And then you'll build another one. And then you'll build another one after that. And every time you do it, you'll get better at it. And that's, and that absolutely relates to this business. If you're trying to learn. Now, if you're the type of person who just sits by your phone, waits for it to ring, and somebody goes, hey, I need you to do this, you know, here's a bunch of money, go, you know, that, that might be a different thing. But if you're on the, if you're sitting on the outside and you want to get into this business, make a video every day. Do what Casey Neistat did. Right. You probably have a smartphone in your pocket. You could probably shoot video on it. And even if it's not an iPhone, there's probably some way to edit video. I'm just assuming that there's something in the Android world like that. Do a video every day and you're going to make a lot of bad ones. And eventually you'll make one that makes somebody laugh or smile or cry. And then when you've connected with somebody on an emotional level, you know, you did something right. That's wonderful advice. Chris, where can people go every day? Where can people go on the internet to find out more about you? You can go to chrisfenwick.com. You can follow me on the internet, at, 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 on the Twitter, at, at Chris Fenwick. If you're interested in woodworking, you can follow me on Instagram, at Chris Fenwick. I would Chris love Fenwick. to do that. Chris yeah, Fenwick kind of on fun. Instagram. I want to see some of your stuff. I love, I love making sawdust. My That's grandson awesome. and I, he, he, he comes over every weekend and he goes, Papa, let's go, make, let's go build something. I'm like, all right, Liam, let's go, let's go make. He, he, we're out in the garage one day and my wife comes in and, she says, Liam, what are you doing? And he looks up at her and he leans down and he picks up a handful of sawdust off the floor. And he goes, look, Nana, we're making man glitter. <gasps> oh, how cute is that? Oh, my god! Yeah, gosh. he's four years old. Well, he's to, awesome. to all the people listening in on this, I say, make your sawdust, make your man glitter, <laughs> make your woman glitter. Just get out there. and I always tell people, get up off your chair and go do something wonderful today. And, Chris, I really appreciate you spending time with us. It's very inspiring. Congratulations on everything that you do. And um, we'll talk to you again hopefully very, very soon.